0: So, in the lessons that have led to today's lecture, um, inshallah, we have made the logic of how we got here clear enough. Uh, and given that we have spent, uh, I think, enough time providing detailed recaps. Uh, on what we have covered until now. I'm not going to repeat the the, the detailed recap. Inshallah, things are clear from, from that point of view. The topic that we were to address today is that of continuing with the answers to some of the questions and the objections that we may have regarding the topic of the resurrection and the afterlife. And if you remember, this is something that we began the last time that we met. Uh, The difference this time being that we're not going to concentrate only on the Qur'anic responses. We're going to go beyond. Given that, as we said, the Holy Qur'an has addressed some of these questions at a higher level, at a more generic level. And so we may hear specific questions, specific concerns, that even though the Qur'anic response is provided within them. Uh, it's not provided directly. And so we want to make sure that we know how to apply the Quranic answer to uh, these questions. Perhaps the one point or one part that is worth, um, worth repeating. Um, allow me just one second here. So perhaps the one, one point or, or one part that we wanted to repeat uh, for the brothers on Zoom, please confirm if you can hear now. Can you hear now?
1: One thing here, my apologies. Uh, play back the playback device.
0: Can you hear anything now? Alhamdulillah. Okay. So what we were saying is that although we're not going to do a full recap, perhaps the the part that we want to make sure is clear is that we began this second topic or subtopic that the, the manner in which we got here is that we wanted to prove the existence of the afterlife. And so we began with the rational proofs, as usual to make sure that our belief system is built on a rational, solid foundation. In the case of the afterlife, we also added to the rational justifications and arguments, we added the scriptural proofs. From there we went to trying to understand what does the Holy Qur'an say in general about providing the proof for the afterlife. And we said that given the amount of verses that the Holy Qur'an has dedicated to the topic of the afterlife, it's worth looking at them in a little bit more detail to try to see if we can provide a little bit of an organization to them. So we put them in four or five categories. The first have to do with the verses that are dealing with those who reject or deny the idea of the afterlife or the resurrection by providing the argument that there is actually no proof that these people are relying on. They have no evidence, no argument, no proof that there is no afterlife, there is no resurrection. So that's at a first level the most that could be said as we explained is that it is improbable so the holy quran then goes on to explain that it is not as improbable and as one might think that there is a resurrection that resurrection is possible in fact it is happening all around us in addition to all the other more miraculous or uh, unconventional let's say phenomena that break away with the natural order of things, but that we can also use to explain and justify that there is a resurrection and we're seeing phenomena in this world that uh, are also miniature examples of the afterlife of the resurrection. After all of this, we went into maybe we said, the Holy Quran says you may still have some objections. Before I provide my final arguments myself, the Quran says, you may still have some questions or objections, some things may still not be very clear, so I'm going to answer those. And so we provided four high level objections and we answered them the last time we met. These were kind of the Quranic big objections and answers that we provided. What we want to do today is to delve deeper into some of the objections that have been raised in time around the topic of the resurrection and the afterlife in general and see what the answers are to them. I'm not going to be spending a lot of time on these, but this is just so that we're all all comfortable and clear with the idea of the afterlife and the resurrection and that we feel comfortable knowing that here are all the main objections that appear in the big books of theology and philosophy and so on and so forth. They're summarized and presented here in a quick way so that you know, kind of, generally speaking, what are the big arguments? What are the big answers to them? And then we can move on to the rest of the topic. So a lot of this is what we can take out from the classics of theology, of Ilm Al-Kalam, of the books of Aqaid. And from the shuhuat, the objections and the questions that were laid out by those who were denying, there were well known heretics that in some cases were considered philosophers, but they were actually trying to prove or, you know, provide some sort of argumentation that what religion is saying is uh, unconvincing, illogical, and so on and so forth. So, this is where a lot of this is coming from. And so, we're spanning, you know, the past 10-12 centuries with these shibuhat and the answers to them. So as we said, inshallah, once this is done, we can go back to providing the Quranic arguments for the afterlife. So that's where we see here that uh, we are here. We're finalizing the topic of the potential objections and questions related to the topic of the afterlife and resurrection. So, the big questions we want to answer today, there's seven of them. The first one, and a lot of these, we have kind of provided a quick Quranic response to these. Today, we're not concentrating on the Quranic responses, although we may refer to some of them. The point is much more on the rational argumentation or what the theologians and the philosophers have went with back and forth. Who has relied on what argument and what were the answers to them? So the first one is, creation as we know it is supposed to be gradual. So how come do you accept that suddenly it appears to be all in one shot in the afterlife? That's the first objection. The second one inshallah that we will look at will be the objection or the shubha of which body is going to be the one that we get back in the afterlife. Inshallah, we're going to talk about this notion of body because it's going to be uh, coming back again and again in a lot of these objections and questions. The third objection is, and we talked about this from a Quranic point of view, but bringing back a non-existent. So something that has ceased to exist, how can we bring it back? The fourth objection is, if every single human being because that's what we're concerned with, there might be other creatures, but let's concentrate on other, on human beings. If every single human being is coming back, and all of them are coming back all at once, is there enough matter that can be used to bring back the bodies of all of those human beings back to life all at once on Earth or not? Okay, that's the objection. The fifth objection is, if The Quran says and the Hadith say that every single human being is going to be brought back all at once at the same time in the same place. Where is this space that's going to be used for all of these human beings to be brought back together all at once in this way? Okay, there is not enough space. The sixth objection is a well-known, famous objection that many theologians and thinkers have referred to as the most complex and the most difficult and the most fascinating. As you will see, it's really not that complex. Inshallah, we'll answer it quickly and easily. But for interest and just so that you know what they're referring to, if you ever hear of this objection or this question, the question of the eater and the eaten, Shubhat al-akil wal-makool. Inshallah, we'll answer this one. and then, the big final question is how can the human being exist eternally when they are made up of matter and we are said we are, we've been saying or we're told that the resurrection is going to be corporeal, there will be a body so how can that body remain sustained and exist forever if there is a body, how can that work the body is going to deteriorate at some point and then we need some way to explain how this can be eternal. So these are the big Objections that inshallah we're going to be addressing today. Before we jump into them, there's a topic that we've touched on but we haven't presented as a topic so I thought just a couple of minutes to make clear and sure that we're all on the same page on this one and then we can get into the actual questions. As you saw, a lot of these seven questions have to do with the idea of the resurrection and the afterlife being corporeal being based on human beings not only being souls but having bodies so this deserves to be looked at because we haven't really spent time and I didn't want to dedicate a full lesson to this just by looking at the verses of the Holy Quran I think it's been become clear, or should have become clear that there's clearly a body that is going to be given to us in the afterlife. We're not only coming back as souls. But if you go back and you look at the history of Islamic thought in general, you'll see that there was, not, there was no consensus on this issue. You have a group of thinkers, the majority, in fact, of those who are referred to as al Hadith and the majority of the Fuqaha and the majority of the theologians in the other schools of Islamic thought. Their position was always, and of course, you have exceptions here and there. We're talking about the crushing majority of them. Their position was that a human being is only made up of this body. The manner in which we talked about the soul being what we really are, and that we're made up of these two very different entities, and so on and so forth, this was completely rejected by them they considered the human being to be this body. That which we refer to the soul, they say is already contained in the human body. And the examples, some of the examples they give to this, they say, for instance, it would be like um, when you look at a rose, that's one of the examples they give, when you look at flowers and you know that there is water in the flowers. But if you look at the flower and and you cut it into pieces, there's no water. But you know that there's water in it, and there are things you can do to extract that liquid out of it. Or, to use a more complex example, a more interesting one, they say anything that is combustible, that you can turn into fire, for example, coal, for example, wood. They say, where is the fire? Where is the fire coming from? So the way they used to explain this is by saying, the fire is contained in the thing that is going to
1: burst into flames if the right conditions are there. It's already contained there, but you don't see it so long as the flame
0: has not been sparked. Okay, so where is it? It's already contained in it. They say in that same sense, the soul that gives life to a human being is contained in the body. Why are we talking about this? Because their interpretation is that there is nothing but the body that can be resurrected. When we talk about resurrection, the only thing that can come back is this body, which contains within it the soul, that which we're referring to the soul. And they rejected the idea that there is a soul and a body. It was only a body. On the other side or the other extreme, you have the those who are usually referred to as those who want to rely mostly just on reason and philosophy. And we're not going to get into all the details of that. They believed that the resurrection cannot be corporeal. There cannot be a body that shows up in the resurrection. That which exists and continues to exist is only the immaterial dimension of the human being, which is the soul. So they believed that the resurrection is only spiritual, only mental. You can refer to it as whatever you want. And everything else that has been described and, you know, brought by revelation to human beings, they say this is all allegorical. This is all metaphorical, figurative. It's not literal. It's not to be taken literally. This is just to make us want it more and understand it more. And so they are much more interested in things of the mind. And they say this is what would provide the most, both punishment or happiness to a human being, is that spiritual existence in a state of bliss or in a state of torment, and so on and so forth—not the bodily, physical uh, dimension—and this is why there was kind of a huge disagreement between them to the point where you know those philosophers were considering the others to be kind of simpletons who don't really understand the text, and on the other side you have the theologians, the mutakallimin, the fuqaha, and the hadith, who would basically call the philosophers heretics and non-believers. Because they say the text clearly says it's the body that's coming back and you are denying the existence of the body. And the issue that the philosopher had is that they could not use their reason, their rational argumentation to establish the necessity of the body coming back. Okay, that was the big issue. They were stuck even if they wanted to. So you have much more balanced philosophers like Ibn Sina who would come back and say, So in this case, all that we can prove with reason is that there is going to be a spiritual resurrection. But we cannot prove with reason that there is a corporal or bodily resurrection. But this is what our revelation tells us. And so we believe it and we submit to it. And this continued for centuries all the way to a philosopher by the name of Mullah Sadra, who finally was able to provide some rational proofs as well. Okay? You put, these were, if if today you were to study Islamic thought, Islamic philosophy, the history of Islamic theology, these are the opinions that you would find in the books. Except if you read the works of the Shia school and the Shia scholars who relied much more heavily on the Holy Quran, and they had access, they had the privilege, the benefit of having access to Ahl al-Bayt And so you see from very early on, all the major Shi'a theologians, from the beginning Shaykh al-Mufid, Shaykh al-Tusi, Sayyid al-Murtada, so on and so forth, all the big theologians, they were of the opinion that the resurrection and the afterlife is both in body and spiritually, in soul. Both are going to happen. And if we go back to the verses of the Quran, without adding any layers of theology and philosophy and all of that, when you read the verses of the Quran, this should become clear. Okay? So, as I said, I didn't want to make this into a big topic, just so that enough so that you understand what's going on if you encounter this topic. And so, for, and here are examples that I'm not mentioning here. For instance, if you look at the verses of the Holy Quran that talk about resurrection, there are verses that clearly state that the resurrection of human beings is going to be back from the earth. They will be raised from the earth. So obviously it's the body that's being raised from the earth. Other verses say that it's, they are going to be rising back from their graves. Again, it's the body. You have verses of the Quran that talk about specific body parts. For instance, when our, you know, our hands and our eyes and our ears are going to testify against us in the afterlife saying, this, yeah, this, my owner basically watched this or saw this, used me in this way or not, or that way, right? This is a witnessing, inshallah, we'll come back to that later. We have, but obviously it means that there are body parts, okay? There are verses that specifically talk about body parts receiving pleasure or pain. So once they are in heaven or hell, for instance, those who are in hell, their skins are going to be renewed according to some verses. So obviously there's a body. It cannot just be spiritual. And so so on and so forth. And so here, and these are verses that we've already used before, so I keep using them so that you keep seeing the, the different ways that they're relevant to us. In Surat Yasin, Allah Subhanahu Wa says, Does a human being not see that we created him from a drop of seminal fluid? And then behold, he is openly disputing. And he has drawn a comparison for us while forgetting his own creation. He says, Who shall revive the bones when they have decayed? Say, He will revive them. So therefore, the bones are being revived. Okay, so there is a bodily resurrection. He will revive them, the one who produced them the first time. So Alam al-Hili and others, they refer to these and they say, there is no doubt. The question is not whether there is a bodily or there is no doubt that there is a bodily and a spiritual resurrection. The point is, how can you prove it? How can you establish the rational proofs for it? And so, in addition to this, all the other examples that we already used. So, for instance, when we talked about the story of the cow, when we talked about the resurrection of the birds, when we talked about some people coming back to life after death. We said the Holy Quran is, in each one of these cases, the point, the Quran is not just telling us stories. The point was, the Holy Quran is trying to provide a clear example, a miniature example of the resurrection and the afterlife. So if that is the case, all of these cases are bodily, they're corporeal. So indirectly, all of this also provides scriptural proof that the resurrection is bodily as well as the soul. So the big question, if we wanted to get into this topic, how do we deal with this? When, when someone says the resurrection is corporeal or not, the first question is, well, we have to ask them, what's your criteria? One criteria is we're looking at the human being and are they made up of only a body like the theologians, the old theologians used to say, Or are they made up of two different entities? Two different types of existence, the soul and the body. Okay? Or as they say, it's all one type of entity. That's one way to look at it. And then you take this discussion to, so which part of the human being, depending on how you answered that, which part is going to be brought back to life, going to be resurrected? Which part constitutes the human being? That's one way to have that discussion. The other one, and a lot, of the, um, a lot of the scholars have emphasized this one more, is that you look at the type of reward and punishment. So is the reward and the punishment in the afterlife, is it limited to one of the two dimensions or are both mentioned? So is it only a spiritual reward or is it a bodily and a spiritual reward? Is it only A spiritual punishment or is it a bodily and a spiritual punishment? So you could look at the human being or you could look at the reward and the punishment. Are they spiritual? Are they bodily or are they both? When you look at the verses of the Holy Quran that talk about the resurrection of human beings, it looks like there is an emphasis in the verses of the Holy Quran that the resurrection is going to be in body. There's not much mention about anything else being resurrected in the afterlife. So this allows us to at least conclude that we know for sure there is a body. But when you go to the types of reward and punishment, then you see clearly both. There are verses of the Holy Quran that talk about your reward and your punishment in the spiritual sense. When it says, for instance, and the, the satisfaction they get Of knowing that Allah is happy with them is greater than any reward they can see in heaven, in paradise. This is a spiritual reward. It's not a bodily reward. There's nothing bodily going on here. Or the degradation, the humiliation, the regret that is associated with the people in hell. This is a type of spiritual torment. This is not a bodily torment. This is an addition to the bodily torment. So when you look at the types of reward and punishment, clearly you can establish both. Okay? So with this inshallah, you keep in mind, this is a huge topic. We summarize it in a few minutes, just so that you keep it in mind. And you know now this whole question of is the bodily, is the resurrection of the human being in the afterlife bodily and spiritual, or only one or the other? Short answer based on the Holy Quran and based on much more contemporary philosophy and theology, it is both. The human being is made up of two parts. Both of those parts are going to be brought back together in the afterlife. The bodily or corporeal and the spiritual. This is the first question. Now, with this we can get into the topic of the objections slash questions. And some of these, as we said, we have already addressed, but inshallah today we're not repeating, we're addressing them in a different way quickly. The first one, will the resurrection be gradual? The point of the question is when we look at human life in this world or any life for that matter, we see that life happens gradually. You need a lot of steps and a lot of conditions to be met for this life to become life. Life doesn't just happen. And then when we look at the resurrection as it's supposed to happen in the afterlife, we see that there are no steps. It's not gradual. There is no development. It all happens at once. So those who want to rely on this, they say, this is impossible. How can this resurrection be in one shot if everything we know about life says that it's going to be gradual? Especially, you know, if you add to it that the body has decomposed and so on and so forth. So that adds just more layers. The short answers that we gave to this is that do not apply the laws of nature that you know in this world to the next world. We made that clear. Two, the laws of nature that you know may be incomplete, even for this world. And we gave examples of this, right? And three, this entire objection is stemming from your idea of what a human being is, which is a human being is this body. When we have said again and again that the human being is the soul first and foremost. And nothing has happened to the soul. There's no steps or gradation or anything of that sort that needs to happen for the souls to come back. Okay, so that's the big answer. If we look at the verses of the Quran and of his signs, is that the sky and the earth stand by his command. And then when he calls you forth from the earth, a single call, you will come forth. Okay, so in case there is a question from the scripture, how does it deal with this? Very clear, it's one call. Other verses, some verses seem to indicate that everything is happening all at once. They are certainly losers, those who deny the encounter with Allah. When the hour overtakes them suddenly, they will say, Alas for us, for our duties towards this which we neglected. So they are saying... You know, how bad, how much we regret now that we have duties towards this hour, this moment that is now overtaking us, that we neglected. And they will bear the burdens on their backs. Look, evil is what they bear. So, and this is a theme that comes back again and again in the whole Quran, that all this happens all at once in a sudden way. Both the end and the beginning, the re-beginning, the resurrection. Okay. So I think this one is clear enough. We don't need to spend too much time on it. The second question, which version of the body will be resurrected? So I think we spent enough time on this one as well, explaining that clearly our human bodies are constantly being modified, constantly changing. So if you look at the body of a human being at some point, if you were to look basically, if you could track down every single human cell, and you look at another point in time, you'll see that not all those cells are the same. So you see that there's definitely a part that is always changing. In fact, this is happening every second of every day of your entire life. And there is a very good evidence to show that if you look far enough, or between the two times that you look, there is enough time, perhaps over seven or 10 years, then you would find that the majority, if not all of the cells have been replaced, have been changed. They have died off and others have replaced them. So if you keep that in mind, the question here is, so what do we do with the idea of true justice of God? So is the question. How can God be just if he takes one of those bodies and rewards it or punishes it? When clearly that was not the body that did all of the actions. So if you live long enough in life, which body is God gonna take? The one that you had when you were 20, the one that you had when you were 50, the one that you had when you were 90, which one does he take to reward and punish? Wouldn't that be unfair or unjust for the other bodies or to this body, depending on whether it's pleasure or punishment? If it's punishment, why is he punishing this body and not the others? Okay, so they go back and forth around this idea that Which body are we talking about if we all agree that these bodies are changing? So the assumption here is that in addition to the fact that they have a certain notion of there is a body that performed an action, which brings us back to materialism and not the soul that is responsible for the action. That's the first mistake. The second one is that they're already telling us, they're already assuming which body, which type of body, what characteristics of that body are going to be waiting waiting for us in the afterlife. In other words, they are saying the exact same body that performed the good or evil in this world is going to be the one that is going to be brought back in the afterlife. We have never said that. All we said is, in the afterlife, we are going to be given a body. Based on what we know from this world and from the scriptures, it will resemble to a very large extent the body that we have in this world. Is it the exact body as in like every single cell is being brought back? We haven't said that and no one has claimed that. And we are going to see some evidence that that may not actually work at all. Okay? So the issue is, should not be whether it's this body or that. The issue should be who performed the action, good or bad. It's your soul. So long as the soul is there, the soul is responsible for the action. We are adding to that from scripture that you are also given a body in which that soul resides that will be punished or rewarded. Okay? We're not saying which body it is. What are the characteristics of that body? We may get to that eventually, but no one has claimed that it has to be the exact specific body that you have right here at this age or that age. Some scholars have said that it should be based on some verses of the Holy Quran. The verses in chapter 36 on Surah Yasin 51 and 20 Surah Taha uh, verse 55. They say based on those verses, I'm, I'm not reading them, don't think they deserve the, the full discussion, but they say it's basically it's the last body that you had in this world. So let's say you pass away when you're 75, then you, when you will come back to in the afterlife, you're coming back with that body. And that's the body that represents all of your life and all of your actions, good and bad, that is going to be rewarded or punished. The interpretation of the way those verses are used is a little weak, so it cannot be used in that way. This is not what the verses are trying to say. They're only saying that a human being is going to be raised back from the dead. They're reaching, they're going a little bit too far in their interpretation that it has to be this body or that body. So the answer, in short, is that we need to focus on the soul. The soul is responsible for your actions, not this body or that body. And with the other objections, we're going to complete the answer to this question. The third question is, How can something that has ceased to exist, so something that has gone into non-existence, into Adam, how can it come back into existence? And we already addressed this to a certain extent. We said that the reason why someone would ask this question is a misconception based on one of two things. Either they think that death equals non-existence, which is not true. Or they think that a human being equals this body, which is also not true. If you think that a human being is only this body and this body ceases to exist, then you can say, okay, so you no longer exist. This body dies. Therefore, you no longer exist because this body no longer has life. But we said that a human being is not just this body. There's a soul that does not die when the body dies. It continues to live on. So nothing, if you are, and that's why we insisted on this, who you truly are is the soul. And if at the moment of the body's death, the soul continues to exist, then you continue to exist. So you have not gone into non-existence for you to come back into existence. That's one. Two, the idea of death. And we haven't spent a lot of time on this. We can dedicate maybe a lecture to talking More in depth, more in detail about death. But death is not equal to non-existence. We said death is simply moving from one type of world to another type of world. For the soul to move from this material world to the world that awaits us after we die. And we're going to come to that inshallah when we give a little bit of the sequence of what happens. But this is completely different from saying death equals to non-existence. That's the claim, and we have shown that that's not true. Okay, so at the moment of death, no one moves into non-existence. So the assumptions of this question or this objection are wrong to start with. Someone who says, how can something that has ceased to exist has gone into non-existence? How can this come back into existence? That never happens. Okay, that was one. Secondly, in addition to this, from a more rational perspective, Even if we wanted to look at this question by materialist standards, there's a problem with the question. They believe, the materialists of today as they have for the past couple of hundred years, since the 1800s, since the time of Lavoisier, they believe that there's a law of conservation of energy, which basically says that nothing is created, nothing is destroyed, everything's transformed. Nothing ever ceases to exist. It just transformed into something else. So if that is the case, then why would you think that in the case of a human being, we are going into non-existence. There's a transformation that's happening by your own admission. And so we can just rely on this. Here, I wrote a little note. Maybe it's a manifestation because this is clearly a scientific principle. This is an empirical principle that has been tested. If you go back centuries before the principle of Lavoisier, which is nothing is created, nothing is destroyed, everything's transformed. There was actually a principle in Islamic philosophy that says that which exists cannot cease to exist. Based on everything, if we look at the world as a closed system, anything that is in a state of existence cannot become in a state of non-existence. That's a Philosophical principle. This Lavoisier principle, the conservation, the law of conservation of energy. To me, it seems that it's one application of that principle. That principle is at a higher order of abstraction, right? It it, it includes more. It includes the material world with all of its laws and principles, in addition to everything else that we may or may not know about. Okay, in any case. The rest of it I think is clear. We spoke about the soul and so on and so forth. So the reminder, I'm skipping over, inshallah this part is clear. The fourth question, there is not enough matter on earth to return everyone. The objection is, as some have actually written it recently, they say that human beings have been in existence for two million years or more. That's a lot of people. And you need a lot of substance, a lot of ingredients, a lot of water and minerals and soil to recreate every single body of every single human being and bring them all back together at the same time. In, in general, in short, that's the objection. I think it's clear enough. So the quick answers to this, we can answer through reason, rational, logical. We can answer with scientific answers, and we can add scriptural. Rationally, the first claim that human beings have been in existence for two million years, we need proof, okay? It might have been a few thousand years. We don't know which human beings we're talking about. And even by scientific standards, this is a very much a matter still up for debate. For how long have we actually been on this earth? This species, this specific species that we have. But let's go with the two million. Fine. The second one is, when we said that there is a bodily resurrection, we still have not said what are the characteristics of that body. If you remember. They are assuming that we're still talking about a body of the same size, of the same density, of the same materials, of the same characteristics as we find in this world. We haven't said that. All we said is there's a soul and there's a body. Okay, that's two, three, we can imagine, I think it's not that difficult to imagine scenarios in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala supplements the content of earth. If he wanted to recreate all of the bodies just from the earth's content and sub- matter, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala only wanted to use that, he could supplement the earth with all sorts of other things, debris, things, he can make the earth bigger, different shape, so on and so forth. That's if the bodies are still of the same size, same density, and so on and so forth. Okay? So we could imagine that. That's the more rational, logical, quick answers. Scientifically, on a daily basis, if you go on the website of NASA, there are two articles that talk about the amount of dust space dust that lands on earth every day and that is one article says that's about 50 tons a day the other one says it's 100 tons a day so somewhere between 50 and 100 tons a day of space dust of star dust of earth content is added to earth on a daily basis 100 tons so here the question is how much do i need for one human being I need that from them, whoever is objecting. I need them to tell me, how much do you need? Because so long as you don't tell me, I can't make the calculation. But I'm willing to bet there is enough just on Earth to recreate all the human beings. So in combination with this, their claim is actually very, very bad math. We are told today that if you took all seven point something billion human beings on Earth today, all of them, every single last human being on Earth, and you were to compact them in one space, just so that you just, you know, place them as sardines, one beside the other. How much room do you think you need for those of you who study a bit of engineering and you know your geometry and your math? This is we're talking in cubic kilometers, you need less than one cubic kilometer to put all of humanity in one space. If you were to put them together, we're not crushing them. We're not kind of, you know, putting them in a blender. That's not what we're saying. We're just as human beings with these bodies, you just stack them one beside the other in the most contained way. You don't need one full uh, cubic kilometer. Earth has around one trillion cubic kilometers. So I think we have enough matter on Earth to recreate not only all the human beings we have today, which has been the explosion in human population. If you go back in history, you see that there was nowhere near the Amount of human beings that we have today ever on earth was much much smaller numbers and if you go back to demographic stats you'll see that very clearly so i think the argument can easily be made that we i think we have enough matter on earth to recreate and the same thing could be said about water same thing could be said about all the minerals and anything else that are the ingredients required to recreate the bodies of human beings okay so that's if we want to play their game Now let's go to the scripture. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, when the horn or when the trumpet is blown with a single blast, and the earth and the mountains are lifted, then ground up in a single grinding. What you get from this image, this is 69 14, chapter 69, verse 14. What you're getting from this image is that the mountains of the earth and the land of the earth are lifted and then they're ground they're pulverized into powder, into dust this could, as some commentators have actually said this is the beginning of what is required to recreate the new world, the afterlife so it's the same content but instead of using a mountain like rocks we need need to pulverize it first Into powder and dust. So that we can create things out of it. Okay? You combine this with another verse for instance that says, And when the earth is spread out. The earth right now is not really, it is spread out. But the Quran is saying it's going to be really spread out in the afterlife. So clearly there is some sort of expansion. Stretching out of the land of the earth. Is it in association with what we just described because the mountains the land are pulverized into dust or not? But clearly, this is not the same earth that we're talking about in its current shape and form and so on and so forth. This is when the claim is there's not enough matter on earth to return everyone. Very similar to it, so everything that we said also works for the next claim, which is we don't have enough space for everyone. There is enough space for everyone. So the Holy Quran says, this is the day of judgment or the day of distinction. We have gathered you and the ancients. So everybody is gathered all at once at the same time. And enough, is there enough square kilometers for everyone? Especially if there's two million people, blah, blah. So we answered in part all of this. We think there is, that's one. Two, there is clearly whoever is objecting this way in their minds, this is the same world what they're imagining happening in the afterlife is this land, this earth, this sky, you know, everybody's standing outside, this nature in this way. Clearly the Holy Quran has says, this is not the world that awaits us in the afterlife. And for this, so I I regrouped verses into three categories that inshallah makes it very clear this is a completely different world. Even though we have verses that say, We are going to recreate you in in that which you do not know. It's going to be a world we cannot describe to you unless you go and experience it. But let's take it in a more detailed way, more clear way. Three types of verses. The first one is the verses that say this world is temporary. It has an end. It has a beginning and it has an end. Okay, so stop thinking that the afterlife is the same world. This one has an end. That's one. Two, not only does it have an end, but that end equals that this world is going to be entirely destroyed. That's two. Three, it is going to be replaced by another world. So each one of these, we can find a lot of verses in the Holy Quran that talk about each. So if you put these together, That takes out completely the possibility of someone wanting to make assumptions or objections or questions with the idea that we're still working with the same world we have here. It's not the same world. It's a completely different realm, completely different dimension. So here are some of the verses that go with these. That the world is temporary. A few examples. Allah says in Surah al verse 2, It is Allah who raised the heavens without any pillars that you see and then presided over the throne. He disposed the sun and the moon, the key, each moving towards a specified term, specified time. There's a deadline for the sun and the moon. In another verse, have they not reflected in their own souls? Allah did not create the heavens and the earth and whatever is between them, except with reason and for a specified term. There's an end to the heavens and the earth and all that is between them. In Surah Al Ahqab, verse 3, we did not create the heavens and the earth and whatever is between them except with reason and for a specified term. Yet the faithless are disregardful of what they are warned. First group of verses. Second group of verses this world, after it has come to its timeline, to its deadline, is going to be destroyed. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Al-Waqa'ah 4-5, when the earth is shaken, a violent shaking, and the mountains are pulverized to powder. In Surah At-Tur 9-10, it says, on the day when the sky will move violently, so it could also be translated as, it will sway back and forth, it will churn, a great churning, or, and the mountains will move with an awful motion in surah al-infitar when the sky is cleft asunder so it's completely broken when the stars are scattered when the oceans are exploded or burst forth in surah al-inshiqaq when the sky is ripped apart or split open now when you when you hear these descriptions do you feel like we're going to be working with the same type of world when Allah Subh'anaHu wa ta'ala says, the sky is going to be ripped open. And, the sky, and Surat al the first verses of Surat al when the sun is going to be wound up or enfolded. When the stars are going to dim out. When the mountains are going to be set fast in motion. And then later it says, and when the oceans are going to be set on fire or ablaze. So clearly this world, this world of ours is being completely destroyed. Right? And then it will be replaced by another order, another world. The day the earth is transformed into another earth and the heavens. And they are presented before Allah. So this is the afterlife. We have moved into the afterlife. That's why we were presented in front of Allah. The Quran says, the earth is going to be replaced. Okay. And the one and the Supreme. So this is 14, the Ibrahim, 48. The sixth objection. So all of that to say, this is all based, a lot of these objections are based on the idea that the person objecting thinks that we are still dealing with the same type of world, same realm, same dimension, same laws of nature. So this is to, to show clearly, step by step, that this world will come to an end, it will be destroyed, and then it will be replaced by another world that we can still refer to, the Quran says, as an earth and a heaven, a an earth and a sky. That's what the Quran is doing. The famous objection of the eater and the eater. And this one is more for interest and just so that you guys know what the big fuss is about if ever you hear or something like that, the eater and the eater. And as we said, this is considered one of the oldest, one of the most complex questions, objections, that exist around the whole topic of resurrection and the afterlife. There are two variants or two formulations to this objection. The first one, not as complicated. It gets more complicated than the second. Imagine and don't laugh. Imagine, it's a theoretical question. Imagine that you have a person A who consumes a person B, who eats a person B. Okay. And then, so obviously person B has now died because they've been eaten. And eventually person A will also die. So the big question is, who will Allah Subhanahu wa Taala bring back when they are resurrected? Is Allah bringing back person A, the eater? Or person B, the eaten? Or both? It has to be both because everybody has to come back. So it cannot be one or the other. But how does he bring back the person who was consumed? Okay, that's one. The second formulation goes one step further. The second variant of this Big Shubha eh, goes one step further. It says person A is consuming person B. But imagine person A, the first one, the eater, imagine them being a disbeliever. And imagine person B being a believer, a good guy. So who comes back? One. Same questions, we're not going to repeat them. But bigger question, if there are parts of the believer in the body of the disbeliever, then Allah Subhanahu wa Taala can He still go ahead and punish the body of the disbeliever when there are parts of the believer in it? The believer should be in heaven. So what about the body parts that have been consumed by the disbeliever? What do we do with those? Okay, so this is the famous question huge problem in the world of the afterlife, the topic of the afterlife. They refer to it as the problem of or the issue of the eater and the eaten. Of course, as is traditional in these in philosophy, they call them kind of mental games or, you know, you create a scenario. No one is really talking about a human being consuming another human being. No one ever has, you know, considered this to be a realistic scenario people are trying to come up with this scenario to to push the thinking of how does this work if something like this were to happen so i would argue let's reformulate this question in a more modern and realistic way we're not living in some barbaric land where people are eating other people the modern formulation of this is that you have a human being let's take the second version you have a human being who is a believer who dies Their body decomposes into the soil and the minerals of the soil. Eventually, whatever substances have decomposed go back into the plants and they are eaten by animals or those plants are eaten by someone else who may be, for instance, a disbeliever. So eventually, the body of the believer has ended up in the body of the disbeliever. I would say or argue that this is a more modern formulation of the issues. How do we answer this? The big question is, which one comes back? Short answer is, they both come back. Which body comes back? Can it be the one that comes back that was eaten? Can it be a body that was before? We would claim, we would say, if we want to play this game with anyone, we would say, any body would work. Because as we have argued again and again, what matters is not your body, what matters is your soul. Okay, so any body that Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala decides to, again, this is based on the assumption that you're coming back with a body of one of the bodies you had on earth, which we said is false. But if we want to play the game for argument's sake, we would say any of the bodies that that person had before they were consumed, it would work. So that's not the issue. The second point, The idea that when someone consumes anything, any food, when you eat an apple, a banana, whatever, a chicken, when you're eating something, your body does not actually keep the majority of what you're eating. The majority of what you're consuming is pushed out of the body. Only a small fraction, a very small percentage between three, 10, whatever, depending on what you're eating, the type of health you have is kept in the body. That would actually be very high which means that the majority of what you're talking about, that body, even if someone were to eat the full body of another human being, the majority of that would not be part of the new body. It would be pushed out. Okay, that's two. That, see, we're going very far in entertaining this idea. The third, que- the third uh, point. Here, a lot of the scholars, when they're trying to answer this, as we said, it's for argument's sake. They are trying to preserve the answers they give. They're trying to preserve the original body as much as possible. But we don't need to do that. As we said, Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta-A'la can come up with all sorts of ways to replenish the earth with new content from which the bodies of those who are being resurrected can come. For instance, all the space dust that's landing on earth. I don't need that specific body or what it was made of piece by piece. All I I need is a body suitable for that soul. That's it. Of course, in addition to this, we could also add that the whole assumption that there is one body that you ever had on Earth that is going to be the most justly rewarded or punished meaning. That it represents everything you have done with that body, unless you had a very short lifespan, that's impossible, because we said the body is changing every second. There's no time when, if you really want to drill down to the level of a cell, you're going to see that cells are dying and being replaced every single second. So, are we talking about a majority of the body being the same, or and what's the percentage that you consider you know acceptable to you, like 50 percent, 70, 10? So this is why the idea, the whole assumption of this, that you're supposed to get back the exact same body that did everything right or everything wrong in this world. That the idea is wrong. The assumption is wrong. If you understand how a human body functions. Okay, let's take it one step further. We, res- we mentioned a verse in previous lessons. I didn't spend too much time on it. I want to mention it here. Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says, In Surat Yasin again, he says, Is not he who created the heavens and the earth able to create the like of them? So here there were two interpretations. We said the like of them as in the like of the heavens and the earth, or the like as in the like of these people in the afterlife. In other words, bring them back to life. This is where the interpretation becomes very useful because the verse said, in any case, it says, like. It doesn't say wa, wa Allah will recreate the heavens and the earth. It says, He will recreate like them. Yaqluqa mithla. Okay, so there's mithliya. It resembles, it looks like. Uh, this takes it to another level. We have narrations from, for instance, from Imam Sadiq and other Imams, alayhi s-salam, that talk about this. They say Imam Sadiq says after the person has died and they will be resurrected, especially in the afterlife. will they have a body and they are asked about the type of body says, yes, it will be a body. Does it have to be this exact same body? The Imam does not say yes or no. He says it will be a body resembling this one so that if anyone were to see him, Or come and sit because the Imam describes that they sit and they enjoy each other and they eat with each other. So he says when the other comes to see them, they recognize them. Because the body looks similar to the one we have here. But clearly the Imam is saying it's not the same body. It's a body that looks like this one. Okay, so this takes out of the equation. So you combine the verses of the Quran with those narrations. And then we no longer have this issue of is it the same body or not. And then, once again, as we said, this is all stemming from a very materialist understanding of what a human being is. It's not about the body, or which body is coming back, or which body is eaten. It's about the soul and the deeds of that soul. You did good, you come back, you are given a body, and you come back and you're going to be rewarded. You did bad, the soul comes back because the soul did bad, it's given a body, and it's going to be punished. That's the bottom line. In addition to all of this, if we use the example of modern day transplants, so let's say you have a human being who needs blood, a human being who needs a kidney, a human being who needs a body part. Let's say there's someone who is a believer who needs a body part from a person who is donating that body part and they are not a believer. Are you allowed? Yes, you are allowed. If it improves your life significantly or it helps you and it doesn't cause harm, of course you are allowed. You take that body part, you put it in you. Now, if you think that that person was not pure, so how can you take it? How can you take blood? How can you take a kidney? How can you take a, whatever body part you need? Because once it's in this body part, it is part of this person. You don't look at body parts. You look at the person because it's about the person. It's not even about the body. It's about the person and the person is more than just the body. It's the body and the soul. And the same thing on the other side, on the other hand. So if you take this example and you take it to the afterlife, let's say a human being consumed another human being. So what? What's the issue? The issue is not that, you know, this person who's supposed to go to hell, but now there is some Body part from a believer that's in part of them, that's not an issue. If it's a part of them, then it's them. Just like on the other side, if there's a part of a disbeliever inside of a believer, it's part of the believer. We don't say this part is the believer and that part is the disbeliever. And we would not say the opposite. So this is specifically relevant to the second formulation of this Shabbat, right? When we said that. This is a disbeliever consuming a believer, and now there are body parts in it, or the modern formulation, which is, you know, you have eaten an apple, but the minerals and the soil that made up that apple belong to a believing human being. So now it's part of your body. So same, same answer to this. Finally, the last one, how can the human being become eternal when matter is not eternal? So here the first thing that we need to say is that this is based on, to a certain extent, we could present this in a very modern formulation. Okay, this is the law of entropy. That if you look at the manner in which matter functions in this world, it's all based on the law of entropy. Work happens. If work happens in entropy, then this creates waste. Right? There's a certain amount of efficiency, but it creates waste. As this increases with time, infinite time means there will be a point where the universe will no longer be able to do any more work. There's nothing left to create work. So it's going towards death. And if you go back to cosmology and understanding how the universe works, this is what they refer to as the big freeze or the big chill. That's one theory. The other theory is the big crunch. The big freeze or the big chill, as they say, the universe will continue to exist for all eternity, eternally into the future, but that's it. Nothing will function anymore. You won't have stars or atoms or everything will, given enough time, all of those particles will cease to do any work. There cannot be any more movement left. There's nothing left. So everything stops. So this goes, brings the universe to a very cold and dead state. So they refer to this as the big chill or the big freeze. The other theory, which is, doesn't work, but it was proposed a while back, they call it the big crunch, just like the Big Bang. So that's what started it. But they say gravity will crumble on itself and crunch itself. And some have said that this becomes cyclical, just like if an elastic, you pull it. It doesn't just do it once. It keeps doing it for a while, right? So big bang, big crunch, big bang. Anyways, one day we'll talk more about these theories. The first answer to this is that once again, they have taken a law of nature that most likely still requires a lot of updating and a lot of thinking about this law of entropy. And they want to say whatever exists, if it is material or corporeal, it cannot exist forever. We don't know that. This is what you know today. In a few years, you might change this. You might find a way to keep this matter and all of its functions performing. Don't take your limited understanding of the laws of nature and then, that's one problem, and then apply them to the afterworld, to the afterlife, where we said it's a completely different reality. And when we talked about all the possibilities that have to be part of reality in the afterlife, we said that those are much greater than what we see in this world because this world is limited by the laws of matter that we know, the laws of nature that we know. That's first point. Allah Wa Ta-A'la says, this is an example. Allah Wa Ta-A'la says, it talks specifically about the bodies. It says, indeed, those who defy our signs, we shall soon make them enter a fire. As often as their skins become scorched or burned, We shall replace them with other skins, so that they may taste the punishment." Obviously, if you read this, and you want to apply it to the laws of nature that we know in this world, it doesn't work. So obviously, you cannot take the laws that you understand from this world and say, this is how things are going to work in the afterlife or not. Clearly, it's a different world with its own set of natural order, let's call it, or principles or laws. And again, All of these, so it's not just this objection, all of these objections, all seven of them and whatever else someone can come up with, the four that we talked about last time we met, a lot of this comes down to a stubbornness or an arrogance about the will and the power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. At the end of the day, and we will talk about this the next time we meet, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said, this world will end and you are going to be brought into the next world. Now, if you want to, instead of focusing on what that means for you, you want to come up with reasons to argue that this is not possible and my little brain cannot understand it and it doesn't work with the laws of nature that I know, fine, but this is a defiance of Allah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying there is an afterlife and he's saying that whatever you do in this world is going to be rewarded or punished iota for iota one atoms worth of good equals one atoms worth of good over there so this should be your main preoccupation and not coming up with kind of secondary silly discussions as the ones that we saw which don't really amount to anything if we want to look at them closely relying on these to say, and therefore, I cannot believe in the afterlife, or I cannot believe in a resurrection. Okay? So we're ending with this verse from chapter 22, which says, they did not measure, they did not measure God with his true measure. Or in another interpretation, they have not justly estimated Allah, or they have no grasp of God's true measure, for Allah is truly most strong, able to carry, is will, or able to, uh, is all almighty, is all almighty. Let's stop here for today, I went way over the time, I apologize for this. Inshallah it was beneficial and useful, um, and inshallah this topic is completely sealed and we can move on to the Quranic arguments for the establishment of the necessity of the afterlife the next time we meet. And with that, we will have concluded, inshallah with that next lecture, we will have concluded the uh, series on the Qur'anic presentation of the proof for the afterlife. Then we will discuss the characteristics of the afterlife, and we will come back to the Holy Qur'an for that, so that we can start seeing what kind of world is it actually. Okay? So, let's stop here, and then I'll ask you a question. First point, is that,
1: as
0: I think the majority of you already know, when it comes to the anniversary of the death of Fatimah Zahra, we have multiple dates. And three of those dates have become the most popular and the ones that are celebrated much more than the others. And they are established, or the ways that they're recognized, the dates, they are measured with regards to the death of the Prophet So depending on how many days after the passing away of the Holy Prophet, they say this is the first date, this is the second date, and this is the the third date. So the first of these dates is coming up in three days. So they call it the first Ruwayah, the first report, which is that Fatimah Al-Zahra, the daughter of the Holy Prophet, passed away 40 days after the passing away of the Holy Prophet. And inshallah, for those who are interested, I have lectures online regarding this topic and all the historical events that have happened from a few weeks before the passing away of the Holy Prophet to all the way to the martyrdom of Fatimah Zahra السلام, as well as his, her sermon and all of that. But for the time being, we are told, so for practical purposes for us, we're told that in the life of Fatimah Zahra, during her life, السلام, at one point, the, her and Imam Ali السلام, were married And they did not have enough to have anyone help them in the house. So Imam Ali would see her and he would see to what point she would get exhausted in taking care of the house, which was a grueling task at that time, much more difficult to do. So at some point when he saw her state, he told her, why don't you go see your father, the Holy Prophet, the Messenger of Allah, and ask him for providing someone to help us in the house. And of course, at that time, these are people that you either rented or bought. Okay, and they did not have that money. So, when this happened, Fatimah Zahra said, Okay, she listened to Imam Ali and came to the Holy Prophet. But she was too shy to ask the Holy Prophet. And she saw him busy with other people, she left. The Holy Prophet noticed her, so he came later. He asked her, she was still too shy to say what she wanted. So finally Imam Ali spoke up, and he said this is the reason why she came. The work of the house is exhausting her, and it would be, you know, very appreciated for all of us if you could provide someone to help. The Holy Prophet said to Imam Ali in Fatimah Al-Zahra, Why don't I give you someone who is better than the help you're asking for? Something that is better than the help you are asking for, and something that is better than the entire world. And then he taught them Tasbihat Al-Zahra. So, the, the manner, the popular way of doing Tasbihat Al-Zahra is that you say 34 times Allahu Akbar, 33 times Alhamdulillah, 33 times SubhanAllah. And it has become customary to say it right after the prayer. And we'll go into the reasons of that in a second. So there's certainly some sort of significance to this Tasbeeh, to this invocation, to this prayer. We have, at that point, we are told that Fatima Zahra salam, when this was taught to her, she created for herself. If you're interested in this, these types of details, she created for herself what we refer to as a subha or a misbaah, a chaplet or a prayer beads. But at that time, there were no beads. It was just a string in which she had made knots. And so she would just go from one knot to another to say her tasbihat. And then we are told that when al-Hamza, the uncle of the Holy Prophet was martyred, she went to his grave and she took the sand of his grave and she made the beads from it. And she put them where the knots were. And that was the beginning of the sabha. And later on, when Imam Hasan hussain alayhi salam was martyred in Karbala, it became customary to use the sand around the grave, the Holy Graves of Imam Hussein السلام, and his companions, for the beads, and other graves as well, but that became the customary way of doing it, as Fatimah al-Zahra did with the grave of al-Hamza, the uncle of the Holy Prophet With all of that said, if we go to the narrations that talk about Tasbihat al-Zahra, and there's many of them, we see that it has a special role. Imam al-Sadiq alayhi salam, in some of the narrations, he says when he's asked about Tasbihat al-Zahra, he tells one of his companions, we teach our children Tasbihat al-Zahra, and we order them to perform it as we order them to perform the prayer. So this is giving us an indication of the importance First thing you teach the child is how to perform their prayer, and you make sure that they understand this is obligatory. At the same time, Imam Sadiq says, and we teach them Tasbihat al Zahra with it. We don't wait till later. Okay? So this is the importance, and it starts associating Tasbihat al Zahra with the prayer. That's one. Imam Sadiq, Salaam, again, all of these narrations are from Imam Sadiq. Imam Sadiq says, If someone performs Tasbihat Al-Zahra, they will be granted Allah's forgiveness. Okay, so now we're going into the significance of Tasbihat Al-Zahra. Let's do Three, Imam Sadiq says, This needs to be performed right away after the prayer. And the Imam specifically says, before you unfold your knees, So when you're doing your tashahud and your knees are folded under you, your legs are folded under you, when you're done your tashahud, the imam says, do not change your position, which means Tasbihat al-Zahra is being directly linked with the prayer. As soon as you're done, don't talk. As soon as you're done, don't go into another prayer or invocation or another amal or get up from your prayer mat. It takes one minute, one minute and a half, two minutes to do Tasbihat al-Zahra. Perform it after every prayer. So this is, there's a special place and time for it. Don't miss that one. Always, always perform it right after the prayer. That's one. Imam Sadiq himself is saying, you get Allah's forgiveness by doing this act. Very simple, easy act. Imam alayhi salam adds, he says, if there had been anything better that could be used to praise Allah, then the Holy Prophet would have taught it to Fatimah zahra But he didn't. He only taught her this, which means this is the best form of praise and prayer to Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala. This is a Holy Prophet. This would require another lecture to explain his love for Fatimah zahra and what he says about her. So he is giving her that which is most precious and that which is the most beloved to him. And this is to his beloved Fatimah zahra and this is what he gives her. So the Imam is making us appreciate what we have in Tasbihat Al-Zahra. There is another narration for the importance of Tasbihat Al-Zahra in which Imam Sadiq says, I prefer to perform Tasbihat Al-Zahra directly after my prayer than performing 1000 Raka'at of recommended prayers. Okay, just so that you Appreciate the value that Imam Sadiq gives to Tasbihat Zahra In addition to this, we have multiple narrations. I'm not going to go into them. When the Imams are asked about what is the dhikr, the Quran always talks about dhikr. Or in other narrations, they ask about dhikran katira Those who remember Allah and mention Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala a lot. What does it mean? What does it mean mentioning Allah, the Imam says, performing Tisbihat al-Zahra. So the fact that you simply do tisbihat al-Zahra, the Imam says in one of the narrations, you are counted at the end of that day as someone who has done your dhikr kateer of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in that day. Okay, that's one more. The significance, and this would require other lectures, but very quickly, There is something in Tasbihat Zahra that I think we can use in our daily lives, and I'm going to try to put it in a very modern way. There are three, it's made up of three ingredients. Or we could say two ingredients. One ingredient is the utterance, is the words that you're saying. And the other one is the repetition. The words that you are saying, they are three statements. Allahu Akbar, God is great or greater. Alhamdulillah, so you're praising Allah. And SubhanAllah, you say Allah is exalted. He is perfect and there are no faults. There are no shortcomings. There is nothing lacking in His being. That's what SubhanAllah means. Those three are in fact things that you find in every religion, in every world philosophy, in every spiritual tradition. The, the basics are there in all of them. This is a human need that is being met by Isbihat But it's being met in a way that you know for sure that it has come directly from the Holy Prophet and your imams have told you, perform it. So while you go through this, you need to understand the significance. So in one word or two for each, when you're saying Allahu Akbar, it is meeting a need, a human need to make you a fuller, better human being. And that need is having perspective in life. You don't give priority and you don't give importance to things over Allah. So long as you understand the place of God in your worldview, and that God is greater of everything, then everything goes back into perspective. No matter what you're dealing with, no matter what you're struggling with, God is greater. God is there and He is greater. And this gives you perspective in life. And that's extremely important. That's one. That saves you hours or days or years of meditation and thinking and stress management and all of that. One. But you need to actually not just say the words, you need to feel it. You need to understand what you're saying and actually believe what you're saying. That God is truly greater. Two. When you're praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you are putting yourself in a state of gratitude. And this is, there's a whole philosophy right now in modern age movements that keep telling you, you have to be in a state of gratitude. Be thankful. Don't be in a state of want and need and criticism and pessimism. Be in a state of thankfulness. Be mindful and thankful all the time. That emits positive energy, they tell you, right? Well, this is Alhamdulillah. This is you being in a state of praising Allah in an absolute way, praising Allah. Alhamdulillah. Very simple. The third part, SubhanAllah. You're exalting Allah, but this is your link to something absolute or something sacred. And both are in every philosophy in the world, in every spiritual tradition in the world, in every, you know, big psychological school in the world. You read Carl Jung and Freud, and we've talked about this. You push enough inside a human being, and all you will find is God. This is the need for the human being to link, to associate with something sacred, something absolute. This is SubhanAllah, something that has all the perfections and none of the lacks. And so it wants, you want to associate with that. And if you do this with that type of thinking, and it's going to take you two minutes after every prayer, I assure you, your state of mind in the day is not going to be the same. And as for the repetition, all I'm going to say is clearly there is an insistence in our religion on repetition. The numbers, why do you perform a fast for 30 days? Why do you pray five times a day? Why do you perform the Hajj in a certain way with repetitions? And why do you perform the Al-Zahra with 34, 33, 33? These are secrets. We can come up with all sorts of theories, I will not now. But clearly there is a code in this that perhaps is the reason why, for instance, when one of the companions of Al-Sadab came to him and he told him the Imam would talk to him and that man would not answer. And so the Imam called him close to him and he told him, What's wrong with you? He tells him, My I am very heavy of hearing. I have become very heavy of hearing. I can't I can't hear properly. And the Imam told him, Keep repeating al Zahra. That's it. And the man, one of the well-known companions of Muhammad Sadiq says, My hearing came back to me. So this is, of course, when you do it and you actually believe and you understand what you're doing, then it has these effects on you. This is how you can transform your life with things like tisbihat Al-Zahra, which may seem simple, but clearly there is a tremendous secret hidden from us significance behind it that makes the Imams insist so much on, make sure you perform it, it's better than 1000 raka'at, never leave the prayer without having performed it. And clearly, do it the rest of the day too. Use it as your du'a. If you don't know any ad'iyah, you don't know much Quran, you just want to do dhikr of Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala. you're in an hour of need, right before entering an exam, you're dealing with a stressful situation, you have Tasbihat al-Zahra, go to Tasbihat al-Zahra, And I will simply end by saying that this is also, and this is something very important in our creed and in our belief system, to constantly be in a relationship with the Bayt alayhi So this is an excuse for you to always be in a state, at least five times a day, of remembrance of Fatimah Zahra, as you perform Tislihat Zahra, and remember that story that the Holy Prophet gave this to her as one of her. Great gifts that you know humanity has been benefiting from for the past 14 centuries. Wow. Wow. This was more than five to 10
1: minutes. Sorry.
0: Okay. Questions, concerns, comments about anything we said. Yes.
1: Um, I have uh, one question. Yeah. Um, just having a hard time understanding the importance of, of this topic um not in terms of like uh like that i know that there's abstract to it but um i feel like the answer to, to all of it was very clear with like yeah the, uh, you will be returned by the one who created you the, the first time right so so it's like it's simple but at the same time if you want to get a deeper understanding there are abstract uh, thoughts but it's kind of like people that argue this are arguing from a place of arrogance. It's kind of disrespectful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So to me, I don't see like importance to argue something like that. And at the same time, if somebody's arguing with you, which body is to be returned? Well, at that point, they have accepted that there's an afterlife and that there's a body that is to be returned. So mm-hmm. whether it is which body to be returned, is that of significance? Uh like uh, like to really uh, delve into, it? or is it just like I feel like uh, the one who cre- uh, the, uh, you will be returned by the one who created you the first time is kind of sufficient for all of this, right?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So the first the first answer very quickly. The first answer is the manner in which we built this entire series from the beginning was not just based, we're doing, we're trying to do two things at the same time. The first one is, yes, we are trying to build our own creed. And two, and so on a rational, logical foundation, convincing foundation for ourselves. And two, we know what kind of world we exist in. Which means that we're constantly going to be in a situation where we may be questioned or not directly, You hear things, you read things, you see things, and it may make you question certain parts of your creed. So we're trying to answer questions that may or may not have arisen. Uh, Does it mean that every single one of these is absolutely relevant? No, absolutely not. Um, I'm following a certain curriculum. This one may have been overkill. I should have probably combined both of these lessons into one. Uh, the reason why they were split is I wanted to make sure that the first objections were clearly understood with the Holy Qur'an. To me, that was more important than the ones that we covered today. Well, The ones we covered today, they're more uh, abstract, theoretical, philosophical, theological. Um, the reason why I, I present them is usually because I've seen the questions in one way or another in books or in debates or things like that. So I'm trying to kind of give, dump all of the big items on you. It seems, and I really apologize for this, it seems very repetitive. And this is because we're condensing it. When the question is asked and you're not in this setting, where I'm, I'm, I'm repeating seven questions one after the other, it may not seem as obvious. This repetition, of, that's why for instance I do that much recap. So that you learn it by heart so that no matter where you take it from, you can continue and the logic is very, very clear to you. When you're asked about the question, I assure you of the eater and the eaten and the hundreds of pages written that every treatise on it, you see that it was not as simple. We're simplifying things and bringing them back to one rational argument and one scriptural argument. By the time you reach someone, I completely agree with you. By the time you reach someone who accepts the afterlife, Unfortunately in history this was used to reject the afterlife altogether Because if you believe that the afterlife is only your body You reject the body Because the body the body doesn't work So you reject the body, you rejected the entire afterlife Okay, so that's the reason why we're, we mentioned it But as I said, perhaps today was overkill And we could have moved down a little bit faster Yeah, but well, points, points very well taken
1: Thing yeah. thing, um, this doesn't have to be answered today, but uh, it's just something that kind of got me thinking a little bit. Uh, so I, uh, under my understanding, there was, uh, when you die, there's like two steps to death, or at least this is a theory, but um, like there's uh there's a death where there's a possibility of you to come back, and there's a death where you can't come back, and that's, to be said that when you enter al-Barzakh, that's when there is no return until Yom the the Promised Time. So, uh, and and that's it. and and then you have like uh, the, the the proofs of it is like the, the hundred, uh, the, the Jews that went and died and came back, and there's other examples. So, with that being said, um, I don't know if there's much detail on when you died, when do you enter Har or not, but that that being is there a possibility of coming back to this life uh, when you're in this like little medium or not? or uh, Okay, is, is so first question, question,
0: question is when time you time say time. there are two steps, yeah. what do you mean by two? Like medically there are two steps? No, no. In it's what way? Quranically for instance?
1: Yeah, I think I, I just saw like a, 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 a sheikh explain that and it was... Uh, he was just saying that... W- w- okay. It was just him, him say- saying himself... Yeah, himself it's not
0: presented in this way. The Holy Quran is yes. not... Pre- Inshallah, we're going to give a full detailed account of this. But in short, the Holy Quran does not presented this way. The Holy Quran talks about different groups of people. The fact that when you die, can you come back to this life or not, while we're in this world? Yeah. Yes, you can. Yeah. And this is all the miracles that Allah Wa Ta'ala has talked about. Yeah. He can bring the dead back. Is this normal, natural way of coming back? No. The moment you go into the dying world, there is a barrier that prevents you from coming into this world. There could be a spiritual communication, but there cannot be a return. Unless Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala intervenes in a miraculous way. That's the first answer. The second answer to this is that the moment someone reaches a state of dying, so they are starting to see death, to see things related to death that me and you were not seeing right now. From that moment on, there are people asking God to bring them back to this world so that they fix their mistakes and do good. This is; Those are the people that Allah says, I will never return them back so that they can do the things that they're now saying they would do, which is do good and do right when they did wrong their whole life. Not because it's impossible to bring them back. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives two reasons. One is that, that's it, you're past the point of dying, you no longer have any chance to act. That's the first answer. The second answer is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says they're lying. And as soon as I will bring them back, they will make the same choices they made the first time. Because this is who they have become. Okay, and inshallah we'll talk about that. The moment you you reach the point of death, the Qur'an says, you are in your world of Barzakh. There is no intermediary. There are the pangs of death, which is when the angels are extracting the soul. And inshallah, we're going to talk about that. As soon as that's done, the Imams say, you are now in the world of Barzakh, which is equal to, you are in the grave. That's it. And the world of Barzakh is a spiritual world. Your body is not in... In, at play here, it's only the spiritual dimension, it's the world for your soul Okay, so that's the world of Gaza In the afterlife, we come back with body and soul That's kind of in gist, very quickly Summary, that's what's coming we'll, we'll give a little bit more detail inshallah when we get there But that's how it's presented to my knowledge in the Quran It's not that you can't come back You can come back, but Allah will not return you to do good after you did bad So there's a group of people, they will never be returned but the Quran never says you can never return, end of story. No. In fact, it gave us many examples of people who returned, and then when you add to that the ruwayat that there's Imam al-Mahdi, Ajallah, Farajah, and there were people who are dead who will come back to life, and then you have all the ruwayat of Rajah, which is people who have been very, very good and very, very bad, who will be brought back into this world, then that completely cancels out the idea that once you go into the world of the dead, you cannot come back. No, you can. So long as we are in this world. But then once this world is annihilated and destroyed, everything is moved to the afterlife, that's a completely different world. Okay?
1: okay. Uh,
2: just one question. So I know you'd like we now like establish that the afterlife is uh, is a different world than what we live in right now. And so my question was for the people who are stuck on the the, for example, like the description of hell and heaven according to the Quran. Um, while we said that it's a different world than what we we have right now, the Quran describes it as close as to what we know, right, and what we experience. So, um, could we say that it's that is also not just used to be uh, like um, the exactly same in the afterworld. world. Like it would not be how it is actually described or how, like, how would that relate? Like, how would you explain that as in to someone who is basically just stuck on? Like, I know to me, it doesn't really matter because to me, it's just like, it's the, re- the reward, that's the basis of it. But to someone who's just stuck on um, the actual Punish, action of the punishment um, and how it would relate if it's a different world.
0: Yeah, so the question, if anyone is, is listening, the question is now that we've clearly established that there is an afterlife with a reward and punishment, what do you do to, with someone who is stuck on uh, you know, the descriptions that we have of heaven, hell, what happens in them, and the exact type of reward or punishment for different deeds, yeah, specifically.
2: Okay very specific descriptions of what would happen Yeah, so
0: inshallah we're going to get into the details of all of that <clears throat> In short, very quickly Exactly right, like you said One, this is a completely different world Two, the Holy Quran itself says that it uses a lot of allegory and metaphor and figurative speech Because this is a world that we cannot understand until we experience it If you have a human being who, who has never tasted sweetness you can use all the language you have, you are not going to be able to make them taste sweetness unless you give them something sweet to taste and they can taste it. It's something you experience, not something that you can describe if someone has not experienced something like that. This is exactly what will be in the afterlife. So we have a figurative description that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has used in the best way for humanity to be guided by it. Now. Is it really in this specific example, we just went through a whole lot of verses and we will go through many more to show that that world is a completely different world than this one. And what we call something there is not going to be, even though the name, the term that has been used is the same for both worlds, the, rea- the reality behind the name is completely different. So inshallah, we're going to come to all of that. It's a good question. There was one question online is there a difference between nafs and ruh and are they tr- uh, treated or judged separately in the afterlife It depends which field you are using the word nafs and the word ruh so in philosophy or al-akhlaq or theology uh, there they are used with different meanings uh, for the time being, let's just say that the nafs, in general, how it's used in the Quran, is the dimensions of your your personality. Their faculties, their faculties of your ethical and psychological being. We can refer to them as the nafs, whereas your ruh is that which makes you who you are in terms of your mind. That's your ruh, and it's all about your ruh. And your ruh has nafs has different faculties. Some of them pull you towards what's good. Others want to pull you towards what's bad. So this is the nafs as it's used in the Holy Quran. So that which is being treated is your ruh. And your nafs are the different faculties within your ruh. That's the short answer to this. And inshallah we continue next time. Muhammadin we'll wa